Welcome back to Kinda Christian. It is a little dark and gloomy today, but that's no reason to be downcast because we are welcoming a very special guest, Matthias J. Barker, a fast-rising, extremely insightful, and aesthetically appealing Christian psychotherapist who is welcomed today on the program to talk about everything from marriage, spiritual disciplines, purpose, calling, and everything in between. So join us as we welcome Matthias J. Barker to the program. I love your camera setup. I mean, just for the viewers at home who don't care at all about what we're going to talk about, but just love how it looks. What what are we what are we recording on, man? It looks great. Yeah, I got you know I uh, back in the day I was one of those famous Instagram photographers that went around gallivanting in foggy mountains and lakes, and so I have all this camera gear that's just been under my bed for like three or four years that I haven't been using <laughs> since those days. And so uh, when I started doing social media stuff, I, I happened to know how to do good lighting and make it look all cinematic and all that stuff. Just, just your, that your up, setup is strikingly similar to the masterclass setup. Like I'm waiting yeah. for the, uh, the classical music. Like, I'm Matthias Barker, and I'm your instructor for optimal mental health, right? <laughs> That's not a bad yeah, idea, actually. Have you thought about that? I guess. It just kind of turned into a thing. I, uh, I have this lamp behind me that has like, it's a tripod lamp. And there's been this like little craze that's been happening with, which is funny with my followers that they're like, I got the Matthias Barker lamp. And everyone like wants this lamp that's in the background, but it's just a lamp from Target. Like it's not, <laughs> it's nothing impressive. It's just a random lamp. But do, uh, yeah. It's, do you, t- so like, can you get sponsored? Can be like the official lamp of the Matthias J. Barker show? Like, or like, you know, you have that. good outfits, you know, I see you, you've got yeah. the, the green earth tones are obviously on your palette. Like, you know, yeah. what's our sponsorship Patreon, you know, what's our, what's our deal, man. Or just the, the, the blessing of helping people, you know? Yeah. If a lamp company came and wanted to do a sponsor deal, I'd take that in a heartbeat. Dude, because. that'd be great. If you're like Matthias, right. Today's episode on anxiety brought to you by light, shade like light shade universe you know <laughs> shine a light on your problems right oh we could have some yeah some terrible pun having to do with shining light i know be a light to the world and to your living room right all right we'll we'll get off that so all right first yeah. first question i have is because in studying up on your bio and reading about this so there are all these terms that are commingling out there in in the universe there's there's Christian therapists, there's psychologists, clinical psychologists, uh, counselor, there's, and then psychotherapist, right? Which I find to be the coolest sounding thing. And I do apologize that I really enunciated psycho on there, but obviously it just means mind. So what is a, what is a psychotherapist versus a psychologist? Yeah. So the differentiations have to do with um, how much time you spend in school. So a psychologist is someone who has a PhD. Um, or a PsyD, that's another version of that, that would give you the title psychologist. Um, a psychiatrist would be someone who went to med school and can prescribe medication. Okay. Um, and then a mental health counselor or a psychotherapist, that would be someone with a master's degree. And so that's what I have. I wow. got my master's in clinical mental health counseling. Um, so mental health counselor, um, therapist, psychotherapist, those are all interchangeable. Just psycho beforehand just designates that I'm not like a physical therapist or I'm not like a occupational therapist. I'm a psychotherapist. And so Got I it. use psychotherapist because I think it sounds fancier and uh, mental health therapist is a mouthful. So I just kind of go with it. That's great. And if I'm already dealing with some stuff, I don't, you're trying to minimize the problems. I don't need to be you know, worried about <laughs> yeah, your yeah. long I, I often get introduced as a psychologist and that's a problem. They almost introduced me as a psychologist on like a famous TV show. And I was like, Oh no, that would really disrupt some things. Cause I think I can get in trouble <laughs> for yeah. that. Like 
Like you, people can report me for. You could be disbarred, or you know, you have your license revoked that you don't even have yet, right? You yeah, know? that would like, be that'd be a not bummer. worth. So I could be a faux therapist, which just means someone who's actually not a therapist but pretends to be. Yeah. All right, that that yeah, all right, and like, then, and then you'd have a whole like angry mob coming after you saying, hey, "Stop calling yourself." You know what? That means followers. I'd love an angry mob. Um, <laughs> we we're, we're we're trying to cultivate an angry mob on this show. So, Good. Uh, all right. So I right out of the gate, I'd love to ask you, what is the mental health issue of our time right now, based on your experience? What are you seeing? What is what is what ailment is plaguing humanity right now that you've seen the most? Yeah, that's a complex question. I think um, there's there's some maybe I'll answer it this way because I don't know how to give like an exhaustive, comprehensive answer to that. But it would I, I think the advent of the internet and social media and how that's affecting childhood development and then how that's impacting specifically relationships is the most interesting and um, maybe the least understood problem that we're that we're trying to wrap our heads around. And that's culminating in a lot of anxiety, that's culminating in a lot of depression. Like we've seen um, anxiety disorders spike for young kids, for example, like higher than we have in the past 30 years, just since 2010 to now has been kind of the highest rise in anxiety disorders for kids like 13 to 17. Um, but strangely enough, like you see that uh, depression is actually going down for like adults um, in the past 20 years or so. Um, you see also like maybe severe anxiety disorders going down. So that's odd. We don't really know what to make of that. But, uh, but then you see like suicides going up. And, and so there's all this kind of conflicting data that we really don't know what to make of um, as far as like, okay, what, what is happening in society right now? And I have theories around that because I, as a, as a, I have a layman's interest in something called media ecology, which is like the work of guys like Neil Postman, which is understanding how mediums of communication kind of affect uh, just how people interact and, and affect culture. So it's almost like a kind of like anthropology, some of its economics, some of its psychology. It's, it's a lot of social theorizing. And so, yeah, I, I think their claim that really, the, I mean, a lot of like Neil Postman's work was written around the television. He was writing in the sixties and he was like, Hey, this is changing the way that humans are receiving information. Just like the move from like the newspaper to like news on TV. He was fascinated with how that shaped how we interact with news and just kind of even public hysteria around crisis that happens just in the world. And I think um, his ideas copy and paste pretty relevantly over to the advent of the internet and how that's changing things. So Jonathan Haidt would be maybe the most prominent oh, voice. Oh, he's great. The Righteous Mind blew my yeah. mind. It was, that yeah. was so interesting. And I, I loved it. That, that last chapter when he talks about um, having conservatives and liberals fill out surveys on behalf of the other and trying to attribute their why they believe what they believe and the mm -hmm. assumptions and to see that both sides like had these like just really nefarious assumptions about you know others and it was really interesting i uh, i he did such a great job in that book of you know just real i felt like it was cool for him to celebrate too like both sides of a dialogue you mm -hmm. know um i'm curious so yeah. depression is going down right mm -hmm. when they study how do they even study that because i, I my first thought is you, do you do you pull people or is there are therapists submitting like the number of cases that they get collectively and then would people be less is the methodology suspect like if you're depressed are you even questioning like whether i'm going to share it because we live in a social media world where everyone seems happy so i'm less less inclined to share that i'm depressed is that potentially yeah, a play no, how a do great, they do that's that? a good question so these would be if you look on just like the world health organization this is kind of the people that collect data every year and they're just kind of looking at trends of certain things as they kind of go up and down and up and down would be um, diagnosed 
uh, mental disorders of major depressive disorder or similar disorders within that category of major depression. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's kind of shocking. Like I saw that and I was expecting to find the opposite. Like it, it doesn't seem like that that would be the case, but I think what's interesting about that data too, that stuck out to me was that we're seeing more attempts of suicide, um, even though they're less lethal, especially with women. Uh, with men, suicidality is far more lethal, um, and we've seen a bit of a, a growing number of those. But then as far as just like kind of like lower um, acuity, like depression, we've seen a rise in like lower acuity, meaning um, less severe. So you're not completely debil debilitated and like you're not leaving your house, you can't get up and um, all those kind of things, but more like you're kind of just operating day out, day in, day out um, with uh, a huge lack of motivation, feeling like a lot of self-criticism, a lot of guilt, a lot of frustration at yourself and feeling that your life is just kind of purposeless and not really, um, mm. you don't feel highly engaged in things. You don't feel like you have really close relationships. You're not sleeping well. Maybe you're having issues with your eating. You're eating too much, you're eating too little. Maybe you're dependent on alcohol a little too much. And so those things are still very common and those haven't, that hasn't really gone down. But like, as far as like the high acuity um, depressive disorders that we've seen, I don't know, like that are reported to insurance companies that are reported to health statistics, uh, the high intensity stuff is going down. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know really what to make of all that, I guess. I guess a lot of people are trying to theorize right now how to synthesize like the data of some stuff's going up, some stuff's going down, but that's pretty normal. Like every new advent of, of like a generation and different technologies that are available in different, uh, in different cultures too. Like these are all statistics of America, right? Yeah. So we're not talking um, worldwide. These are, these are U.S. statistics. It's like, how do you make sense of that? How do you, what, what's the cause? And I think proving causation is really tricky because everything is like in this flow of, of lots of different variables that are affecting things. So you could say, oh, it's just the internet, but, but maybe not, maybe it's not the internet. Maybe it's also just like our agriculture and the way that we're eating is totally different. Like, especially in America, like we're eating mm. tons of preservatives and, and fast food. And maybe that's having a huge, you know, effect, like undoubtedly that's having an effect. And, you know, so I think like in Jonathan Heights, I referenced him and the coddling of the American mind. He really talks, he presents, I think a really compelling theory for how specifically um, 2010 was when broadband internet was, was really widely available. And, and, uh, and we've studied quite, not conclusively, because there's always margin for error here, but like with, with young people, 13 to 17, it's had a very, very negative effect. The, the more that they are connected to the internet, the earlier in age that they have access to things like social media, the more reported anxiety disorders um, in women in particular, um, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, wow. uh, depressive disorders, not so much um, in men, I, I think, and he has reasons why he thinks that, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. So as far as like the larger ailment, what's plaguing us in society, I, I guess I don't know. I guess uh, there's a lot of things to consider. Well, no, I've been curious about this and I, yeah, as we sort of trend towards the the AI discussions and you know technology continues, you know, for all the bad news out there, right? There's a movement of a th there's a thought movement that says that technology is accelerating so quickly that we'll be able to optimize and become so efficient that you might actually be able to provide for people at a basic sustenance level. But there's gonna be a lot of people, you know, who don't have anything to do. Like if we were, what if we achieved this sort of like nirvana of technology where robots do everything? Like, how do we find meaning? And I forget who the the speaker I saw, I saw with, but he said his his point was, he said, the biggest thing that keeps him up at night is what are we going to do and how are we going to find purpose if we don't have jobs and basically vocations to do if, if robots eventually did take over? 
mm-hmm. you know, and optimize so much of it. And I thought that's interesting. So when you, you talk, cause you talk about a lot about that on, with your videos with purpose, et cetera. So, uh, especially in a quarantine and times when so many things are shut down, how do you help people think through finding purpose and meaning uh, mm-hmm. when there's so much uncertainty swirling around right now? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I am. Um, I think there's, there's three big things that I really focus on. So, so one would be that you feel like you have um, well-connected and meaningful relationships with people around you where you feel like you're an essential piece of a community. Like that, that's a, that's an essential part, I think, of having a flourishing life and finding purpose and meaning. It's like, well, what's the purpose? The purpose can't just be this indwelled sense of who you are and being happy, who you are in a tube, just kind of by yourself in a vacuum. It's, it, it's, there's an interconnectedness and much of our depression, much of um, the crisis that plagues us so intensely is interpersonal. It's, um, it's how suffering interacts within our social connections. It's, it's abuse. It's um, trauma with other people. It's, our deepest wounds are wounds that happened in community. And, and so our, our way of healing, our way of kind of rising to a place of purposefulness and, and well-roundedness just as a human being also happens within community. And so I, I focus a lot on just like a really basic question, like tell me about your friends. Do you like your friends? <laughs> like are, are your friends people that you respect? Um, do you feel like you can depend on them? Do you feel like you want to be like them? Like, and those are really hmm. sharp questions because it reveals right away, like, oh no, like maybe I, I, I have buddies that I go get a drink with. I have, I have buddies that I kind of connect with, but not really. And, um, or I don't have anybody, like I'm just alone or I have these friends online. And, and then that really kind of, when we start to put together this, this web of here's how to maybe improve the social connections, here's how to feel more embedded within a community of people that you love and respect that are all moving towards the same direction, purposefulness really, um, almost arises out of that. So that's, that's one dynamic. Another thing that I focus on is feeling like there's just internal consistency with the actions that you're exhibiting and the beliefs that you say you believe. So a lot of the, um, the purposelessness, a lot of the feeling kind of aimless can also be derived from just feeling incredible amounts of guilt and self-criticism and having a lack of confidence that you can do anything that you would respect Hmm. and uh and that's 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 six months of therapy right there it's like having conversations about uh what are your standards for yourself what are your standards for life what does it look like to be someone that contributes positively to the world and and how do you see you in reference to that standard Hmm. and then how are you motivating yourself to get to that standard are you berating yourself with self-criticism are you highlighting all your insufficiencies with this ruthless dictator-like intensity um, mm. or do you have compassion for yourself do you see yourself in process or do you see yourself as like a number on a scale yeah and um so that's another dynamic is we're looking at how you're embedded in community we're looking at just like kind of your own internal schema or or, or way that you conceptualize yourself and the guilt and self-criticism or the anxiety that swims inside just your own psyche um, yeah, there's, those, those are two things that I think I focus on a lot. I'm trying to think of a third one just because I always like putting things in threes, but yeah. there's, there's probably another one I could talk about. <laughs> but yeah, let's say, let's start with those two. So, and I'm, I'm going to ask to paint with a broad brush here, but when when people come to you or, and just humans in general, they look at, we're all, it's a common phrase, we're all broken, right? We all have our, and I don't know if this would be the correct use of the term, but our neuroses and we all have things that we do that bug us, right? We have 
you know, mental patterns, thought processes, like everyone has their thing that they do that they're like, why do I do that? And they might even know that they do it, right? Is it, painting with this broad brush, do most of the negative things we have about humans, whether it's, you know, acting out, anger, um, you know, lying, anything that we'd consider negative behavioral patterns, are those typically rooted in trauma or wounding that happened? Like, do we learn to wound from being wounded? Is that what happens? Like when we get down to human imperfection, where does that really come from? Cause we all take for granted everyone's broken, but like, you know, if you were, is it in most cases you can trace a negative pattern in your life to something that adversely affected you or do they just sometimes just like, you know, they just happen because you're just who you are. You know, how does uh, that may be a convoluted well, way of asking that. That's a, no, that's a great question. I think through that, I mean, I'm in a sense asking that question every time I'm doing like a first like assessment with somebody that comes into my office that's seeking therapy. And so I'm trying to find out what's the root cause, right? So it's not just that the, if we resolved the root cause, everything would go away because oftentimes the ways that we cope with the root cause create problems of their own. So it's, it's not just a matter of, all right, let's just get down to the heart of it. And then we, if we can fix that, then everything else will click into place. Like that would be great that sometimes it feels that way. Like I think for a lot of people, salvation feels that way. Like they come into a relationship with Jesus and then they don't even desire to smoke anymore. They don't even desire to drink anymore. And, and uh, they get embedded within a community at church and then they just feel completely renewed and refreshed and they're happy. And, and it just feels like one thing happened and then their life just got better. And, and that's great. And, and uh, there's even theologies around that, like theologies of deliverance um, that just kind of refresh you all in one go. And that's just, okay. Well, you brought it up. So I have, okay. So that's, You've, 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 you brought up Jesus, which I guess is good considering this podcast called kind of Christian at some point we were going to get to this. Right. Um, so, oh man, I have so many questions for you. And of course, all these questions asking for a friend, right? Yeah. 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 Let me finish that thought real quick though, because that'll give you a little context for that. Your your next question is I'm thinking not just about maybe the, the internal root of trauma, which absolutely can happen. I'm also thinking about development. So what lessons did you think, did you learn from your parents about how to interact with yourself, how to interact with the world? What did you learn about you? What did you learn about the world from your parents? I'm also thinking even in utero, just like what were the experiences that you had just even biologically, like coming into this world? Like I, I've worked with people who have like alcohol fetal syndrome because their, um, their mother drank while they were pregnant with them. And Wow. Uh, that affects things like they're way more likely to have things like ADHD, way more likely to have like uh, behavior problems in school. Um, there's there's all sorts of different symptoms that can accompany just very biological traumas that happen even in the womb. And so it's, it's a complex, you know, amalgam of biology and even how your DNA is encoded from the trauma that your grandparents, up to your grandparents, you know, experienced. And a lot of us don't know how to put our finger on that, but for many of us in America, like our grandparents suffered through the Great Depression or went to war like in World War II or Vietnam. And, and that has actually been shown to change the encoding of how the DNA replicated. And we've seen that, especially in rat studies, all the way up to the third generation, when a, when a grandparent rat experiences trauma, that, that trauma, that reactiveness, maybe is another way to say that, is, is found to work itself out in behavior of the grandkids. And so there's all sorts of things. There's like, there's the trauma you, you experienced. There's the trauma your grandparents might have experienced. There's the biological components of just how your body was formed and put together. There's getting bullied at school. And there's what your parents taught you about what it meant to be a man or a woman. Or, um, you know, it's, it's uh, complex. And then that's not even like society and all the pressures of media. So I wow. think sin affects society and biology and 
the person in every facet and in every dimension. And so it's not, it can't usually be just sourced back to just one thing. Although one thing can be cataclysmic for sure. It's, it's an amalgam of things. So sorry, go ahead. And no, ask no, you question. brought up so many things I want to ask. And I knew we were going to run into yeah. this because I, I find your work so interesting. All right. So let's start integrating faith into this. What yeah. are some things top of mind that, you know, you might've heard in the religious faith community you, know, you mentioned you know trauma like the you know the sins of the father carried on etc what are some things that maybe have been around and existent in faith as it pertains to um to people and uh but now right. science is is actually starting to confirm like you just that's a great one where you're like oh yeah trauma it's now i had heard that i'm like is that really true and it's like, oh yeah now they're saying that trauma is actually genetically passed on at some it's stored in some way what are some mm-hmm. things that faith has been saying for years and now science is sort of confirming when it comes to mental health and, and your work? Yeah. Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is just the mindfulness practices that have kind of been vogue recently and meditation and focusing on your breath. Like that's been in the Christian contemplation traditions forever. Like the monastics, I was funny, I was reading a book by Martin Laird, who's a scholar on monastics and in con- Christian contemplation. Um, I forget which school he's at, but... He's uh he's kind of a major voice. Into the Silent Land was a book that he wrote. I got that um, recommended from John Mark Comer on his Instagram. He, he talked about that, and I uh, was reading that book, and and I just felt like holy crap! I'm I'm reading Steve Hayes and acceptance and commitment therapy. Like <laughs> this is this is like almost bar for bar like mindfulness. And wow. how in the world is it, it? It almost felt like plagiarism. I was I was, I was mad. <laughs> I was like this is. Why, how did I not know of this before? And even in reading people like Dallas Willard or people that have maybe paid attention to the monastic traditions, um, and by monastic for people listening, we're, we're talking kind of like early Christianity, like around three, 400 AD and, and into kind of like right before the middle ages, kind of just this period of people that kind of went out into the wilderness and, and like tried to connect with God in silence and in solitude. And some of them came back and brought their insights and then reintegrated back in the world. Some of them just wandered out into the wilderness and stayed there. And, but, but everyone's reflecting on what it means to connect with the divine and doing that specifically through the practice of having present awareness and noticing the chaos of the thoughts that, you know, kind of arise when you just sit quietly by yourself, like all these anxieties and all the things you have to do, all the ways you need to fix yourself, just emerge from almost within you. And, and that's, that's a pretty normal experience, but the practice of almost not quite detaching from it, but noticing those things and then bringing attention back to the presence of God, bringing attention back to the promises of God. And like an analogy that Martin Laird uses that um, is almost like exactly an analogy that is used often in acceptance and commitment therapy, which I just thought was funny, but he uses this analogy of uh, like, we're a mountain and there's weather happening on the mountain and the weather is our emotions and our thoughts and the lightning is kind of striking around us but the part of christian contemplation and prayerful contemplation and silence and solitude is realizing we are not the weather mm. these these thoughts and these emotions that plague us and that are stressing us out and that are relentlessly trying to demand our attention and our action um we are something more than that we are something more rooted and more concrete than that. We're, we are the branches and he is divine. We are in and of God. And there's a, there's a groundedness that that gives you so that when you are interacting with the weather, that uh, you can make wise decisions and you can pick which 
thoughts and which feelings to associate with and which ones to act on and which ones are like, oh, well, okay, that's an interesting thought, but that's not really something that aligns with what I believe or how I want to act. And because the reality is that not every thought that pops in our head is us. Like it's echoes from a critical parent. It's echoes from a bully or a teacher. We have thoughts from media and people who are unkind to us, that girlfriend or boyfriend that dumped us for not being good enough. Like we have all these things that, that echo through our brains and, and, uh, instead of really fusing to those thoughts and just kind of treating everything as literally true and of the deepest essence of who I am, you know, the studies of within Christian contemplation, we're talking people like John of the cross or Ignatius, like these, these men that have carved the way of saying, Hey, um, we are of the kingdom of God and we are children within the kingdom of God and we are renewed and refreshed and, and given godly and heavenly bodies one day, but we are regenerated and living in new life today. And, and that includes this um, ability to maybe distance ourselves from all of the concerns of the world, you know, in Christian language, and to be able to associate wisely and thoughtfully in the world, but uh, bringing uh, like God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, so to speak. I hope that's not too abstract. No, so practically speaking, I'm curious. So practically speaking, right, this is, and I, this is, again, asking for a friend here, We'll, we'll call him Brian. Um, he, uh, I, you know, you meant, I call it monkey brain, right? Where just all of a sudden you sit down and you're like, I mean, literally you, you start focusing on a task and the nine other things that you have to do pops up in your mind or whether you're sitting there trying to just meditate or pray or whatever, you know, just have, I got you every morning. Um, Brian tries to have coffee in the morning and just sit and just think, and it's amazing the number of tasks that pop up and I got to do this, got to this. And I've often wondered if that's a human reaction to, wanting to put off or escape something what they're doing is just thinking about other stuff. But I know that that's also gone up. It seems like that's gone up in society with all this information and our brains being trained to react to bite-sized bits and our attention spans going down. Just practically speaking, since you brought it up, how do you, how do you combat that? How do you combat the mind going like all of firing all over the place? Yeah. Well, you know, and this would be informed by acceptance and commitment therapy, but I think, but I think has, really like close parallels to everything I've been reading in Christian contemplation would be the idea that it's not even that we're trying to kind of discard or control or exert kind of force over these thoughts. It's these thoughts are occurring, but we just notice that we're something other than the thoughts and that we get to choose which thoughts to act on and which ones not to. And it's not a, it's not really an exercise in demanding that only certain thoughts enter our mind and only thoughts can, you know, even torment us. It's, part of being human, part of just being on this planet is being burdened by everything that feels chaotic and out of order. That's, that's the human experience. And so having an expectation that I can descend to some sort of um, enlightenment that, or uh, some sort of spiritual like uh, maturity that those things don't burden me, like, isn't realistic. Like Jesus was burdened by the cross. He was, he was, he asked like, God, like if there's any other father, if there's any other way that we can do this, like, let's, let's do that instead. But your will, not my will. And that's, that's a great model of just experiencing, not avoiding, um, not pretending like they're not there, not, not even getting frustrated with yourself for the thought being there, but God, this is how I'm feeling. This is my thought, but I'm submitted to your will. And I see that in Paul too. Paul was plagued with all sorts of anxieties and frustrations and, and uh, the thorn in his side, but also just even in the book of Acts, like all the all the things that came his way that he didn't expect and that caused him psychological distress. But uh, he, 
he was grounded in who God is. And uh, I think that there's a wisdom there. I, I just, even in Job, Job was a righteous man, but he felt the full gravity of all the suffering that he was enduring. He got bad advice from his friends. He got cynical. He got frustrated. But then when he met with God, he grounded himself in who God is. And uh, I think it would be a pretty hard, hard uh, sell and, and a hard thing to pitch someone to be like, if you just meditated enough, if you just prayed enough, then you wouldn't feel psychologically distressed. That's, I don't, I don't see any hope in that either. It's when you encounter distress, you, when you encounter the storm, you're grounded, you're rooted in the presence of God, who is the master of the storm, and uh, he'll guide you. So in the Christian tradition, there's a concept of the renewal of the mind, and there's also the Holy Spirit dynamic, which according to Christian tradition, uh, followers of Christ um, who accept him are imbued with this Holy Spirit who actually dwells in their mind uh, or somewhere in their, in like within their greater metaphysical being. Right. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned multiple voices in your head, right? There's dark voices, potentially, if you believe, if you believe that spiritual paradigm, there's dark, there's dark voices, there's Holy Spirit, there's just your natural clutter of the mind saying, Hey, here's, you know, laundry we got to do or whatever. Right. So it seems like a pretty crowded house in there. Um, (laughs) What has, uh, you know, I think something I've personally always struggled with is, um, on one hand, you mentioned Paul, Jesus, et all the heroes of Christian faith comment and have dark nights of the soul. So I don't see anything in scripture that says, you know, you, you pray and everything just goes great. Autumn, you know, there's, everyone's wrestling and at some point going, where are you, God, right? On the other hand, there's this, all this language promising, like, I am, God says, I'm near the brokenhearted, right? I'll give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. Um, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Um, there's a be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Yeah. So what actually leads to, in your opinion, uh, what is, or what does the renewal of the mind process look like? As you mentioned earlier, praying and sometimes people just get over it. But um, do you think the fact that it, it generally takes a long time to renew people's minds, that's consistent? Um, sure. with the Christian tradition that it takes a long time? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone thinks that. I, I mean, even John Wesley in his book, Christian Perfection, like he still thinks it takes a long time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I think everyone is kind of on this path of, of trying to, and, and maybe this would be a good thing to specify. Like, I don't think the arrival, so to speak, is not being disturbed by pain or not experiencing pain or not experiencing distress. I think it's rather that... Um, like there's this, there's this line that I like from Gregory the Great, he, or he wrote a book on pastoral care. Is that Gregory the Great or the other Gregory? I don't remember. One of the Gregs. I'm a little rusty Gregs. on my Gregories right now. One of those Gregs. Um, he, he wrote a book called, um, on pastoral care. And something that he said was for someone to be, you know, filled with the spirit and ready for pastoral ministry, they ought to be stout in fasting. And there's this idea of, hmm. it's not even that they, that pain doesn't, affect them that they're not in pain it's that they stand stout in the face of it Hmm. and that has been a model for me like when i think of just my own psychological distress because i don't know i'm I'm going through things all the time too and it's as a counselor like you're 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 always attending to everyone else's pain while trying to hold your own complexities in life and and i i'm feeling like we have we have our our daughter is on the way uh in march and oh congratulations um, yeah thank you yeah my wife's expecting and 
and there was a, just a long time where she was really just scared because baby wasn't flipping over. And if you know, if you know anything about just like the process of birth is that the baby needs to be head down. And that's, that's how, you know, the baby should go through the birth canal in a way that's really, you know, maybe uh, mitigates the likelihood of complications. But if you have a breech baby or the baby is feet down, then that creates a lot of complications that potentially baby could get stuck and then you need a C-section or, you know, what have you. And so it's, it's not the end of the world, but it was really scary. We were just kind of really hoping and praying the baby would flip over. And, and there was just moments where like our wife, my wife and I were just really contending and praying with the Lord, like, gosh, like God, we just, I think maybe just the fear of uh, having a young life in your hands, maybe sat on me for the first time. It just in that small instance, it was the first fork in the road where I'm like, Oh, something could go wrong with, my child that I don't even know yet, but I love so much. And, and uh, I've just felt the weight of that and it's felt highly anxious. And so did my wife and just praying. And I think just the fear of, Oh, life is fragile. And she could like, I don't know it, it, it again, like this might be an overreaction to, to, if you're familiar with the birth process, like breach births happen all the time and people are okay. Like, but, but I don't know, like it was just our first confrontation with maybe this, the mortality idea yeah. of this young one. And, and for whatever reason, like that, that just really disturbed me for, for a while. And it's not that, um, it's not that that pain doesn't affect me or that I can immediately have these kind of Christian isms that make it go away. Or it's just that, that I contend with the pain head on. I don't avoid it and I'm not crumbled by it, but I can stand, stand stout in the face of it. And I can, uh, I can maybe enter into it courageously is another way of saying that and feel the full distress in a similar way that Jesus felt the full distress of what the cross meant. He was sweating blood. Like he wasn't trying to shove away any of the emotions. He wasn't trying to cheer himself up. He wasn't even trying to encourage himself. He just was feeling it, but he submitted to the Lord. And, uh, and then when he was even on trial, he stood in silence. He stood stout is another way to say that. Like, in, in the face of all of it. And he attended to things that mattered to him in the pain. Like he attended to his mother. He made sure that someone was taking care of his mom. He, um, he, uh, he encouraged the man on the cross next to him and said, you're going to be with me in paradise. Like he was present. And that's something I think that pain really tried to, tries to push us to is pain tries to push us to all the ways that we can fix what's coming that we don't know what's coming. It tries to criticize ourselves. So we need to be acting in different ways to mitigate the pain. But I think maybe a Christian model for stand, standing stout in the presence of pain is being fully aware and fully present, both of the bad and the good, and knowing that you're not going to be crumbled by it, but you can stand resilient and experience everything that's coming your way. Mm. And uh, But standing in trust of the presence of God with you. Um, so, I don't know. That's we've, my thought on that. You obviously have a, a, a knack uh, and a passion for, um, I love this, early church uh, fathers and thinkers and what are some spiritual disciplines that uh, have been discussed for centuries that maybe have been neglected at our own to our own detriment that are now you're seeing? And obviously, you mentioned John Mark Comer, and in his book, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, talks about Sabbath and resting and how vital that is. And it seems like all along there's been this prescription for dealing with much of what ails us today. But uh, what are some of the spiritual disciplines you have found to just yield the most fruit? Well, yeah, I'm a big fan of John Mark Comer. Um, his book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, is a great one. Um, You're I welcome, John Mark, by the way. You're welcome for that plug. All right. 
Huh? I say you're welcome, <laughs> <Yeah>. John Mark. <laughs> uh, he's uh, yeah, he's he's maybe one of my favorite teachers in America right now. I, I really trust and admire that guy. He um, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think he really was one of the main people that helped me kind of rediscover some of these disciplines, along with Dallas Willard. So Dallas Willard has a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines that really is a great survey over the the tools that have been in the toolbox in the Christian church, you know, for the whole, uh, the whole ride, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of them are undervalued in, in the current American church and for, for many reasons. And I think John Mark is another current voice trying to advocate for some of those. So give me uh, a couple, Richard what are your favorite ones? What are some ones you love that have just yeah, yielded yeah. enormous so fruit? I, I practice Sabbath. So I, um, I take a day a week where I get away from my phone and, um, starting in the evening and then ending in the evening the next day. So the end of my week is uh, a Monday. So <laughs> I, I work a uh, Tuesday through Saturday. So, um, so, oh wait, no. Yeah. Sunday. Sorry. So, um, so yeah, I, I start in the evening and we cut electricity as much as, you know, that makes sense. And so we just kind of walk by candlelight and oh, really we, cool. pray, we listen to worship music and we stretch. That's, that's a tradition that we've started doing is like, let's just take that night to just stretch. And then we have like a long conversation over a really good bottle of wine. I'll, I'll kind of splurge and get something real nice and we'll have a good meal that was intentionally made. And, uh, and that's just a time I think in the week for my wife and I to catch up and catch up about meaningful things. So beyond just like, Oh, how was your week? How was your day? It's like, uh, I think this, this last Sabbath, like we had a long conversation just on friendship and what friendships are important to us, what we think is necessary in friendships, moving into being parents, like how do you think our friendships are going to change? And so that was really meaningful. Next day is, uh, is usually filled with spending time with family. So we, uh, my parents live in town, so we'll go spend time with my parents or some friends and it's very social. Like we're both pretty social people. So That's great. Um, yeah, again, trying to get away from our phones. Uh, I spend the morning often reading and I read theology on Sabbath. Like I'm always reading psychological journals and psych psychology books, but on Sabbath, just a personal thing I, I want to do is, okay, I'm reading theology that day. I'm reading Church Fathers. I'm reading John Wesley. I'm reading Martin Laird. I'm reading uh, John Mark. I'm, I'm trying to fill myself with thoughts of God. And then I pray for a long time. I go on a long walk. Uh, so yeah, and then kind of moving into the evening, we kind of wake back up and I don't know, we'll go out to eat or something. <laughs> I don't know. We, we'll kind of go back to normal life, but that has been such a refreshing mm. practice. I think that's led to a lot of sustainability for me is just this ability to work really, really hard all week, knowing that there's going to be this crash, but not a burn, but a crash and renewal. And, uh, and I think my body even feels the rhythm of it. It's, it's like I get, I'm getting to the end of my work week and I'm feeling so like depleted, but then just those moments of getting to read and to talk to my wife and to stretch and, and even just the lighting of, having dim lighting and it, it's all speaks to the soul in a really powerful way. And so I, uh, I don't know, like I said, I'm a big fan of John Wesley. He thought that it was incumbent upon Christians to practice the Sabbath. Like it was theologically required. And I think he makes a good case for that. I'm, I'm not a theologian, so I don't, I'm not going to make <laughs> like decisions one way or the other, but I think that the Sabbath was certainly established before the Jews got hold of it. Um, it was established in creation. And I think that the Jews had an expression of that. Um, that that God maybe handcrafted for them and worked with them. And I think Americans have an expression of Sabbath that they need too. And uh, it might look different. It might look different than the Hebrew Sabbath. It might not include all of the cultural icons, but it's going to, I think we're kind of discovering it as we go. And, and God will reveal that too. 
the church in, in his time. It's like, okay, what does it look like for an American in 2021 to take a day off and not just a day off from like just to entertain ourselves and to go shopping and to watch Netflix and to, mm-hmm. you know, binge a TV show, but to actually refresh ourselves and mm. remind ourselves that we're not a machine that produces things. We're human. And um, so that is maybe the most close to my heart practice that, that I've incorporated. That's, that's, that's a tall order. Whenever I pitch it to someone almost, almost, you know, nobody likes the idea. When I first, when I first talk about it, like, I don't have time. Uh, oh yeah, I would get bored. That feels like a waste of time. But then the people I can talk into actually giving it a shot, even if it's just for an afternoon, it's, it's self-evident. Yeah. Um, it reminds you of something human in you. Totally. Well, you did mention they get a bottle of wine. That's, you know, one of the perks to start. Oh. Yeah. To, you know, yeah start that's the- usually the sell. If I can get them, if I can get a bottle of wine that they'll like, they'll usually come. Yes. Start <laughs> off there. Um, I want to come back to a minute to the, the more spiritual side of the voices, um, that we, we interact with. Uh, so how would you go about helping people discern the different voices in their head and how would, how do you go about recognizing, you know, cause adopting a spiritual paradigm, there's a, there's God's voice, right? Which is, you know, yeah. oftentimes is discussed as, you know, presenting a, a, either a verse or a thought that seems outside your normal thinking and it's an impression. And that's obviously a whole nother discussion but and then there's the enemy and the the dark side as we'll call it which tends to be accusatory etc and then there's also self-criticism right and there's our own natural stuff so how do you how do you go about sorting through all those and trying to discern because there's a there's a lot going on in there mm-hmm. great question i think um a lot of the self-critical voices feel like the water that we're swimming in so they're hard to identify on our own mm-hmm. um we do that in community i think is being able to kind of talk about the things that we've come to believe about ourselves and which of those are healthy and which of those are informed by past traumas or people in our life that um, weren't looking out for our best. And, and so that, so that's a common thing I'll do in my clinical practice with people outside of trying to distinguish the word of God, but just on a more broad level of like, okay, which voices in my head should I prioritize and which ones should I not be suspicious of, but just um, be mindful of maybe it's one way to say it in, so that's done in community. And that comes from having deep and rich friendships with people that know you well, and then also are aligned with your values and can remind you of what, um, you're saying what you share those thoughts with people and they can say, hey, no, that's dude, that is not like, this is the truth. Yep. That is not, that is not we now. I mean, so just candidly, since obviously as a practicing Christian, do you believe that, you know, whatever iteration of Satan and his, you know, fallen angels are around and active that they play an active role in trying to attack mental health and, and keep people from thriving. Yeah. 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 So I believe that. So how do you, is there a way that you would say that's man, that seems like, cause it would seem like from a, just a strategic standpoint, if I was a, you know, malevolent, you know, evil being, I would try and masquerade. I would try and hide under, mental, you know, or accusation, just stuff that's the normal self-critical stuff, right? Is there a way that you would say, yeah, you know, this, this is where it kind of crosses the line to, I might actually tell a, um, a client, yeah, you know, I think that's actually more spiritual in nature than just standard, you know, human self-doubt. That's a, that's a good question. I think though that, um, I don't know, and this is all conjecture. Like I, yeah, I don't know. know. We, we get, these are just my opinions. Like, but 
my guess is that um, like in reading screw tape letters, um, I, I kind of came to a new imagination for what it looks like for demonic forces and how they try to impact people. And my guess is that there's the most efficacious strategies would be to um, inflict like the wrong ideas or unefficacious ideas or selfish ideas, whatever, like sinful ideas, but within contexts of relationships with other people. And, and so it's, uh, it's trying to lean and obscure and manipulate the will, but within sequence of processes that are happening within community and with other people too. And so it's maybe, maybe you're like trying to wrestle with the idea of like, should I look at porn tonight? Should I not? And then you're trying to like really like exercise like this willpower in the mind. And then maybe Satan's trying to tempt you and, and really trying to talk you into it. Like maybe like, I'm not gonna say that it doesn't happen, but I don't think that's the primary battleground for demonic temptation is, is just trying to like obfuscate your willpower. I think that the primary ground is trying to get you to believe things that look and seem like the truth, but that lead to destruction. Mm. And, uh, and specifically, and again, this is all conjecture. This is just oh, yeah. my opinions, but I think to lead you into willful dishonesty in small ways that in aggregate and over time create catastrophes and, uh, and maybe, um, undermine what God's trying to do in your life and what God's trying to do in you. Um, and so I think uh, that's when we say the father of lies, like, I think there's a real interplay between the truth and acting honestly and acting in integrity and then acting in ways that no one can know because your intentions are only visible by you. But uh, in a way that you know in your own heart is dishonest, you know in your own heart is just trying to push your own agenda in a way that the other person can't fully consent to. And you're in an argument with somebody when you're criticizing your spouse, when you're um, being short-tempered with your kid, that you can excuse yourself and then no one can tell you otherwise because no one knows your intentions. But in your own heart, you know. Mm. Like you know that you're not just trying to win an argument, you're trying to stomp on them. Yeah. Like you, you know that you're not just trying to, well, you know, it's true, but, but you know you're exaggerating or you know that you're... Uh, that that's maybe the battleground that I see is most ripe for <laughs> manipulation by dark forces. So would you say as, as the more mature someone becomes in faith that it's not just the, you know, obviously hopefully there has to be some sort of outward transformation. I would argue, right. Based on what we read in scripture, yeah, it would seem to be, has to be some outward transformation, but I've heard it said that the actual metric is the is the time to repentance and the recognition that mm. uh, what I've what you've said or done and knowing the true meaning, right? Because that that is the ostensibly that's the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict and say like, oh, like I I I knew what I did right there, right? And to come back and take a look, and hopefully those events become less and less, and we're you know continually uh, in process as we yeah. as we like to say, right? Yeah, I I love that. I think humility is absolutely going to be a fruit of the spirit in that i also try to hold intention that that often god can develop things in us that really grow into spiritual fruit and maturity but there's also decisions that we make that also grow in sin and in, and um and those things can somewhat grow at the same time like for example that we can enjoy the work of um i don't know many of the theologians that were at work in early america like jonathan edwards like he has really helpful things to say about Christian theology, but he also owns slaves. And wow. it's like, what do we make of that? Do we toss the dude out completely? And a lot of people would argue yes. And, and John, John Piper has gotten a lot of heat for liking that guy so much, <laughs> like, because uh, he was in sin and that was an evil thing to do. Um, I never knew that about Jonathan Edwards. Wow. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the whole time he had slaves. Yeah, I believe wow. I'm right on that. Or he, uh, 
I don't want, I don't want to like um, accuse him of things he didn't do. Yeah. He owns slaves. I, I'm trying to remember. There was a theologian that also had a child with a slave and um, even though he was married and I'll tell I you what, afterwards, I'll f we'll go research afterwards. Yeah, and go if, research that. Don't, don't put know, that on Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> yeah. No, no, if we're, totally, if we're totally wrong, we'll just cut this out. So yeah. uh, if we're totally wrong yeah, on, gonna, on Jonathan I'm gonna Edwards. I'm going to Google it on my phone just because I don't want to like, there's some Calvinists listening right now that just had their world shook. Yeah, it, but it, they knew this was supposed to happen. So as if they had a choice, you know. Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, and you don't even, that doesn't even have to be necessary. Yep. Edwards owned several black slaves. Wow. Yeah. Including uh, young boys who were kidnapped. Yeah. That is just, um, oh my so, God. How do you separate, like how you, uh, that's just, that's the same for me with Thomas Jefferson, the, the man who writes the, the, the Declaration of Independence, right? That all men are created equal, you know, it just, and then, you know, had slaves yeah. and just, it's like, how do you, how do you look at yourself in the mirror and do that? And I think that the Christian tradition has an interesting answer to that. And that's that even um, men who do lots of good in the world are just, we're still sinful and we still make, can often, can make awful, awful decisions. And that's like in the Bible too. Like, like Christianity is not trying to hide that. Like David yeah. had tons of wives and was awful to his wives and killed tons of people. <laughs> like, yeah. like uh, essentially like um, killed, killed this woman, like killed this woman's husband and then raped her. Like, as king and this yeah, is the uriah the hittite most... yeah i put him to the front of the lines got him murdered and yep. uh it's like yeah it's insane and we sing all his songs every sunday in church uh, the psalms they're there we we treat them as inspired scripture and and we should but, but but like there's there's this uh strange like um on one hand people can do incredibly good and enriching things and even have a relationship with God that isn't founded on their own righteousness, but founded on God's righteousness. And, and they can even draw close in relationship with God while still being incredible sinners and doing things that are just evil and awful or being capable of those things at least. And, uh, and that's like this seeming paradox that really disrupts people. Wow. And, um, and I think that it's, it's, it's really easy to look into the past and be like, that was just really awful, but it's, it's not obvious in our own hearts how we're doing that as well. Yeah. And, uh, and that there's times that we're being, that we're communing with God, but then we're also harboring all of this sin and all of this, um, all these behaviors that we know are making the world a worse place. Yeah. And, uh, and it's easy to point at Jonathan Edwards, of course, like, cause that's, you know, obviously evil what he did. And, uh, and that makes me not never want to read him, but like, I also have sins in my own heart that, people are going to look at that are going to be like, okay, can, can Matthias be capable of all these helpful and nice things and still, um, you know, still be capable of all these evil things. I don't know. I could go on that for yeah. a long time, but what are your thoughts around that? Well, here's the thing. I we're as I knew it was going to happen, we're going to run short on time here and I cannot not ask you as a teaser because we're just going to have to have you back. That's going to be the, we're just going <laughs> to yeah. have to have you back because I can't not ask you a question or two about relationships and, uh, and marriage in particular. Okay, uh, so sure, you've got yeah. some great stuff on there. Um, okay. A little bit of a lightning round here, but uh, Hit me. do you think that, uh, do you subscribe to that there is uh, God's intended uh, for people or that there's a large swath of people you're compatible with and you should and choose that you know, with the direction of God? Um, I, I have a hard time answering that question without getting into 
God's middle knowledge and his foreknowledge. I know, I know it opens up and I, it's, uh, it just, some people are like, you know what? Like God just like, he picked this person for me and it was just, it was ordained. Right. And well, other like, people are like, no, I, yeah, I'm compelled to a lot of I, people. I think at the very least, I don't think you have access to that kind of special revelation. Yeah. And I don't think, listen, my grandpa swears that God told him in a prayer that his wife was the one and he didn't even like her, but he married her anyway because he thought God told her. Whoa. And I'm only here today because of his obedience. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm happy he acted on that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I like my genes. Did I they guess. have a good so marriage? They <laughs> did they, are they, did they have a good marriage and made it work? Yeah. They, uh, well, it was my great grandpa. Yeah. They, uh, yeah, they were married for a long time. So it's, it's, um, strange. Okay. I now, was that your experience? Ever, <laughs> sorry, saying it. Was that your experience? Did God tell you in a prayer to marry your wife? <laughs> no. And I don't, and I never advise it. Yeah. Because I think that my, my guess is that God wants you to have the personal ownership in mm -hmm. the decision that you make to marry somebody, because you're going to need to lean on that when things get hard is that you made a decision and it's your responsibility to follow through with not just a commitment, but to follow through and affectionately loving and pressing into um, care for that other person. Not, not just as like this cold rule that, well, you, you said you would, so you have to, but that personal ownership of I chose you for good times, for hard times. I chose you, whether we're understanding each other and our communication is great or, or we're going through a rough patch. And, and I think it would uh, complicate your relationship with God pretty intensely if you got into a marriage because God told you and then the marriage is really hard and then you would blame God because he did this to you. I think that's just a whole mind game that doesn't work. So if you're listening and you think that you're going to marry somebody just because God told you, cut it out. This is a sign. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking. It's, uh, I once, I once did that to somebody. I, I, uh, this is a funny story, but I, I had someone approach me and was like, Hey, yeah, God told me I'm going to marry this person and that I should wait until, you know, to, to date or anything until this person's available. And, uh, and I was like, well, why, what's, what's making this person unavailable? It's like, well, they're married, but, um, <laughs> but God told me they're going to get divorced and then I'm supposed to marry them. I'm like, ah, okay. Nope. Wrong. And, and yeah, why don't you step it, into my office it, for a minute? Let's let's talk this out a little bit. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm like, all right, tell me about your childhood. Like, we need to <laughs> we need to dig into some stuff. Um, oh, sorry, I bet. that sounds super judgmental. But I, I just don't I just don't want people. It's it's often a game that ends in a lot of people suffering. That's that's maybe my point. Do you so do you in your practice? Do you do pre engagement counseling or a premarital yeah, yeah. counseling? Mm, I do a lot of that. What is what would you say for those who are uh, about to take the the plunge, et cetera? You know, either about to get engaged or you know in premarital. What are just some things that are just like these are the absolute things you have to look for, and really we're trying to suss out uh, or suss out in the, in that process. Yeah. Okay. Well, three things. Always, so one, always three. <laughs> one, my recommendation would here's here's the biggest conflicts I see with couples. I do tons of marriage counseling, so the biggest conversa conversations, the things that really disrupt close relationship, are arguments over things like finances. Um, you'd be surprised, but tidiness and just like general, hmm. like like um, living and like decisions on should we buy a house, should we do a project, stuff like that, like um, things like work and future dreams, and like if someone wants to move for work, someone wants to do a PhD, someone uh, wants to just stay and, and kind of work an easy life, retire early versus someone who wants to work a whole bunch. Um, some other arguments are questions around sexuality and, and sexually connection, sexual connection. So there's, there's a few things I think you could just put in your tool belt that maybe feel a little bit irrelevant now, but when 
when life circumstances present them to you, you'll have something to go off of. And so I'd say, do uh, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. <laughs> do it. I've so many couples coming in that cannot make like reasonably negotiated decisions over money. And it's just a silly reason to have your marriage fall apart that because you can't decide what to spend and what not to spend. So just go do it. And even if you think, Oh, we're fine. We are totally aligned. Just, just do it anyway. Like go learn about CDs and bank accounts and mutual funds and homeowners insurance and just get that under your belt. And so that would be helpful. Just on a practice. So they just must miss that in the, in the, so in the dating process, uh, you know, this is actually this man, we'll have to do this more on another episode, but there's the whole courtship. I kiss dating goodbye. There's the fact that dating doesn't even exist in a Middle Eastern standpoint, right? It's, you know, you're like a kid and then one day you're like a grown person and due to land and economic arrangements, the village is, you know, going to, you know, that's your marriage, right? right. Or right. half the world. Uh, I watched that show on Netflix, uh, Indian Matchmaking. Uh, oh, yeah. I haven't it seen was, it, but I, I know fa- it. It's fascinating. And people just get married through a matchmaker and they do compatibility and they make, and they have these beautiful, long lasting marriages. And I thought, man, like there's something to be said for that. And I'm curious, you know, it's, it's funny. And in the show, they delineate the difference between a arranged marriage and a love marriage. Yeah. Um, and I thought that's so interesting. Uh, you know, what, I guess, what's, what's Matthias's sort of dating advice when people are dating, you know, to, to look for, and obviously it seems, he, uh, Chris Rock always said, I think it was Chris Rock. He said that when you're dating, uh, the problem is you're dating each other's PR reps or agents. So you're getting the best, uh, the best side of everybody. <laughs> and then one day you get in the room and you're like, Oh, I'm actually meeting the real person now, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, okay, you know, and that's actually, that actually segues pretty easily into the second thing I was going to say earlier, which is, uh, maybe take like a personality test. Uh, Understandingmyself.com is, is a big five personality test. That's great because what you're going to find is whatever spectrums you guys are on the other ends of, like opposite ends of the spectrum on personality, that's going to be your locus of conflict. Mm. And those are going to be the conflicts that you're never going to necessarily resolve completely because they're not embedded in just some disagreement over something superficial. It's like core parts of your personality. One of you wants to hang out with people five times a week. One of you finds that completely depleting and awful and terrible and doesn't want to go to group things, would just rather snuggle up and watch TV. Or, you know, so those aren't problems <laughs> that are going to go away if someone just talks the other person into it. And so wow. you have to know what those are and then build reasonable skill sets around those personality dynamics that you guys are going to conflict on. And so understandingmyself.com is a personality to test that really breaks that down. And then having conversations like, okay, you're an introvert, I'm an extrovert, or you're really high in openness and really creative. And I'm really high in conscientiousness. I'm really by the book. Let's have conversations around how to have communication and not moralize the other person's personality. Because that's what mm-hmm. happens is the other person's like, well, you're just lazy and all over the place and undependable when really they're not. They're just creative kind of free spirit. Or you're just a killjoy and you just suck and never <laughs> want to have fun. It's like, well, no, they just, they want to have security before they feel like they can have fun. They don't want to overspend on the budget. And so we, we moralize those things. So having a good understanding of personality, having a good understanding of how that's going to affect your relationship budget, like figure out money. Um, you can read a book called come as you are, which is a book on female sexuality and the female arousal system. Gosh, just some basic psychoeducation around how women, um, engage sexually is helpful for a lot of Christian men who had none of those conversations and no conversations in church that female sexual arousal systems are different than men's. And if you try to organize your entire sex life around what turns just you on or what, you know, is just enjoyable for you, 
you're going to really create a lot of distance and you're going to make your wife feel really unseen. So that's, wow. that's another I, one I could, I could keep going. I, I got it. You did, you, since you mentioned sexuality, I'm so curious because this is something I get from a lot of people who are not uh, Christian and actually I guess Christian too, but there's the whole idea that Christianity, even though philosophically, I would argue it does not, anyone who reads Song of Psalms recognizes that it definitely endorses healthy sexuality, and that's a gift from God. But it seems that like culturally, Christianity is viewed as a buzz, the ultimate buzzkill and suppression of the sexual instinct. Mm-hmm. And that, do you find a lot of people when they finally get married and have trouble adjusting from the, this has been taboo for so long, and now suddenly it's okay, and you know, they have trouble sort of crossing that chasm and now being like, oh, I, it's okay to, you know, sexual from a Christian standpoint? I wouldn't say that I find that with Christians broadly, but I think that some people that have a very specific um, experience within the Christian church around interpreting purity culture Mm. conversations and converting those into strict and rigid rules um, that they internalize really deeply. And maybe that's coupled with a sense of either self-shame or complicated by an abuse background, or maybe just they have a personality that's kind of neurotic and very sensitive to, um, the kind of sexual rules and taboos. Um, it's complex. I think that uh, that's not necessarily something I think is indicative of a Christian experience. Yeah. All right. Well, last question, since we're coming up in time here, uh, I have to ask this because it's all the rage, but uh, personality test, Enneagram, Strength Finder, Myers-Briggs, <laughs> um, flipping a coin. What is the best way to know yourself based on those tests? Any favorites that you big like? Five. Yeah, big five. Big five personalities. That's understandingmyself.com. That's my favorite one. It's favorite one. Okay. Yeah. I think the reason I like it is because it's been cross-culturally verified too. You can, um, you can mm. do that test on someone who lives in Indonesia, someone who lives in America, and you're going to, they're going to have similar personality spectrums. It's not a culturally confined test. You can even do that uh, on d- different generations and, and get really um, results that are really close to the actual person. So you could do that test on Abraham Lincoln. You could do it on me. And uh, it's not going to ebb and flow and shift depending on the cultural milieu, so to speak. It's one of the few personality tests. Uh, Myers-Briggs is like that too, but um, few personality tests that I think carries across culture. So like Enneagram, for example, uh, that's great for middle-class white folks in America. That's, that's awesome. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I haven't seen it be like super relevant and like these aha moments of self-discovery for people in other cultures. I'm not saying it's not, I'm, I'm sure People of other cultures have enjoyed that too, but that's my take. Well, I owe you a thank you because I was looking for an angry mob, and since you've now denigrated the Enneagram, <laughs> I can assure you that the uh, the mob, the Jonathan Edwards fans, and the Enneagrammers, and the convergence of those two wow. are going to be now um, liking and undisliking and unfollowing me. So um, that's thank so you. funny. Yep, I think I pissed off the Calvinists and the. Uh, you did it, man! The- you were the most ecumenical offender I think we've ever yeah. found. Well, you thanks. know, I try to. <laughs> Yeah, you know, equal opportunity for all, you know. That's great. Well, Matthias, thank you so much. We're just going to have to have you come back because we just touched the, the surface of marriage and relationships and uh, so much there, and that's so it's so helpful. I love your mind, man, and I love what you read. Um, I love that you read such deep things that require so much attention since I'm not able to, and then you can distill them down for me so I don't have to. So I can keep reading Curious George while you read John Wesley. So thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back and, uh, and see us. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for listening to Kind of Christian. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review.